and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We're going to take a dive into data today because data, statistics, numbers, graphs is at the heart of the government's strategy for tackling the virus and easing the lockdown. And it affects how that is reported and discussed by us all. So how many people in the UK are really infected with COVID-19? How many tests are being conducted each day? How much of your personal data are you going to hand over to the government for a track and trace system to work? We'll also turn our attention to a more analogue display, the sight of a conga line of MPs snaking round the Palace of Westminster to vote in person. Why has the government ditched the virtual parliament already? And we'll be taking a look at the quite astonishing scenes in the US, now approaching a week of protests, riots and demonstrations, coming up later. I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah White, Deputy Director. Hi, Hannah. Hello. And a big welcome back to Gavin Freegard, our Head of Data. Gavin, great to have you with us. Thank you very much. And we're really delighted to be joined by Roland Manthorpe, tech correspondent at Sky News. Roland, the tech companies have really owned the lockdown. Do you think the country's taken a big leap forward and we're all now going to be on top of new tech forever? No, not, not really. I mean, not judging by the scenes in Parliament yesterday. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have adopted digital technology, but it's been forced adoption. And I think there's a real open question about whether this will be a digital transformation uh, long term and for who. Because, yeah, just because you've been forced to do something doesn't necessarily mean you'll stick with it. Doesn't mean you love it. Exactly. <laughs> that, that rings very, very true, I have, I have to say. We might touch on that later. We're going to come on to those big data and small data questions shortly, but I want to start with a site of MPs voting in person to junk their short-lived experiment with digital voting. We had these long lines of them, snaking in a socially distant way through Westminster Hall, the great stone chamber, almost a thousand years old, which lies at the heart of the parliamentary estate. It was immediately dubbed the Mog Conger after Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the Commons, who designed it. Hannah, wasn't the greatest success, was it? No, I think most of the MPs who were participating in it were mocking it at the same time, which wasn't a great look. And... I think it's just incredible, really, that the government has exchanged a fully functioning digital voting system and hybrid system whereby MPs could participate either from within the chamber or online, which really was world beating. If you look at other parliaments around the world, if the government wants something world beating, they had it. Um, Most parliaments didn't have anything like that functionality. And they've junked that system in which all MPs could participate in favour of a this analogue system, this queuing system. I mean, you couldn't get anything more kind of typically British, could you? Which, in which it is extremely difficult, looking at the pictures, to socially distance, um, which takes much longer um, and, and which, you know, is inferior in so many ways. For what benefit? I mean, they've been really unclear. They've afforded a number of different justifications. None of them really seem to hold water. Well, why, why have they said that they've done it? Well, they started out by saying... This is because we have to show that Parliament is going back to work. They wanted to create a sense of normality, I think. And that's all very well. And you you had some ministers saying, oh, you know, if if our constituents are queuing, then MPs ought to queue too. But I think there's a YouGov poll today that's found that 76% of people actually think that MPs ought to use a remote voting system during the period of the coronavirus. So that doesn't really wash. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's a real traditionalist, made a lot of the quality of debate point. He said that when you were using a a system where MPs dial in online, 
um, you couldn't allow for interventions. People can interrupt each other when they're debating and you had lower quality debate. That's definitely a point. And this, this is a point that other MPs have made. Yeah, it's definitely a point. And if you look at other parliaments around the world where MPs do just turn up and read a speech and go away, it's, it's definitely true that, the, you know, you don't get such a, uh, a sense of there being a debate. But at the end of the day, that feels to me like a nice to have in comparison to the, in relation to the point that if you restore that, you create a system in which a third of MPs cannot participate at all. Um, and this is because they're shielding or they're looking after family members who are shielding or, or they just can't get to Westminster with uh, any kind of safe mode of, of transport or, or other, other personal reasons. Um, what is, um, what's happening about them? So on Tuesday when the House came back, they couldn't participate at all. So there were 200 MPs who weren't there and who didn't get to vote in the vote, which decided that they wouldn't, from that point onwards, be able to use digital voting. So they didn't get to have a say. Um, the government since backed down and said that MPs who are personally, uh, clinically vulnerable will be able to use what's called a proxy vote. So they'll be able to nominate another MP to vote on their behalf. Um, but that doesn't help the MPs who are not vulnerable themselves, but have vulnerable people in their households who find it difficult in these circumstances to travel to Westminster, the ones coming from, you know, the Western Isles or whatever, um, and other, other people who, you know, just are, have caring responsibilities, whose children aren't back at school yet and don't have any other way of looking after them. What are they supposed to do? And anyone who's not in Westminster, even people who do have a proxy vote, won't be able to participate in debates. So the government said they'll keep the hybrid system going so that people can ask questions. But if there's debates on legislation, debates on subjects that the opposition parties want debated, anything like that, anyone who's not physically in Westminster, so a third of the House of Commons, won't be able to participate. So do you think that's it for remote working? Well, you know, there is going to be some continuation of the hybrid process. I think also the voting in-person system is going to evolve a bit over the coming weeks. Uh, there are some new ideas in play about how that, that might be done. But I think it's a real shame that for you know, really unclear reasons, the government has, has taken this innovation, which was actually working pretty well, um, and prematurely junked it. And I think you know, there, were, there are things, you know, Roland's right to say that you know, not everyone likes technology when they try it, but actually sometimes when they try it, they find that it has advantages they hadn't perceived before. And I think that, you know, a cool, calm analysis of, of what Parliament has tried um, would actually reveal there have been some advantages, um, which and maybe people should give thought to keeping those things rather than just kind of reflexively in a reactionary way saying, no, we need to go back to where we were before. Roland, where are you on this? I mean, is it Parliament turning its back on tech that it had mastered so, so quickly or really reaching to, you know, bring back some of the elements that tech just can't deliver? Well, I think there are good reasons to be in person. I mean, debates with interventions do work better and there is greater knowledge transfer from being around other people. But I, I think that in, in, in a way, I don't think, I've got to be honest, it doesn't seem to me that the government has been entirely honest about why it's doing this. I mean, it's been very well reported uh, in, in, the, in the FT, for example, that Boris Johnson would like to have his, his troops back both to kind of support him at PMQs. I mean, that won't exactly be possible until you can have more people in the chamber. But also, I think there's a sense that the government wants to try and kind of rally the party. And there are lots of new MPs who, um, it's been said, are kind of slightly different culturally um, from maybe kind of previous Tory MPs in the, the so-called Red Wall. 
And I think I think the government wants to be able to 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 bring them on board. And I suppose, and I think I think this kind of this speaks to the way that the questions of power intersect with questions of of technology. And I suppose that looking at this in a kind of to step to step back a bit, I think that one of the biggest issues throughout this crisis for the government has been UK centralisation and the way that the centre interacts with the regions. And on and on and on, we've seen how that digital tools aren't being used to to overcome this problem. I mean, you know, I'm I'm. I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly neutral about whether or not you use technology. I mean, use it or don't use it, just try and get to the, the best solutions. But, but this particular example, it, it seems like we have an incredibly clear problem with centralisation. And that, and that has a lot to do with where MPs spend time and where they're based and what they see every day. And, and this could be a real opportunity to, to try and do something about this persistent problem. But, but I, feel, and I feel like we're, that we're aggressively not seizing it. I mean, we are a long, thin country with a bit of a, with a, the sea running through part of it. I mean, Gavin, how have the devolved administrations done this? They've, um, they've, they've done digital voting, haven't they? Yes, better in short, I think. Um, Wales and Scotland have used electronic voting within the chambers of, of the, the Welsh Senate and the, the Scottish Parliament um, for decades. And sort of during this um, crisis, you know, the, the Welsh Parliament, uh, Welsh Senate is uh, meeting virtually. Uh, we've got Scotland, which I think is running a sort of hybrid system where you can have some people in the chamber, but again, is able to have people um, access it virtually as well. But again, I think as, as Hannah and Roland have said, I think the, the worst comparison is with what the Commons is doing now versus what it was doing a few weeks ago. You know, the Parliamentary Digital Service did a really good job to stand up that um, voting system extremely quickly. And now we've gone from that system, which allowed everybody to vote, to you know a kilometre-long line of MPs equivalent to 89 London buses which is clearly not respecting social distancing. And we've already seen a member of the cabinet having to self-isolate um, over the last couple of days. And um, so actually the worst comparison is probably between the Commons now and the Commons a couple of weeks ago. If, um, I mean, we all hope he doesn't, but if, if Alex Sharma does test positive for COVID-19 and all the people that he's come into contact with have, have to self-isolate, I mean, that, that will really be a, a big blow to this plan because if you're following contact tracing rules properly, as obviously MPs should to set an example, I mean, he attended cabinet. He he was he was mingling with MPs. He was in the chamber. Yeah, he went to vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was in the chamber. Yeah. You know, like op- opposite uh, Ed Miliband, speaking in exactly the way that we know that can can put droplets into the air. Um, and and you see you see exactly why that kind of having that you can't that contact tracing needs to be in addition to self to, to kind of certain measure of lockdown self-isolation rules because if you have large gatherings especially in in kind of sensitive work settings and everyone has to self-isolate then it, it's going to be a real problem for that organization it's going, it's going to keep interrupting that organization something something i want to come on to hannah just br- briefly finally any solution to the lords or for the lords in all this the lords looks like a sort of um go ahead organization in this in this circumstance because they've um they've they're keeping their um, progress towards being able to be fully digital. Um, they're introducing online voting. Um, they've really from the start uh, prioritised enabling peers not to be in the building because a lot of them are in vulnerable groups. Um, and, you know, they don't seem to be moving away from that. So, you know, really the, the Lords is also <laughs> making the Commons look pretty bad at the moment.
come on to data and some of the questions about testing and tracing that Roland was beginning to bring in, which are very much on everyone's minds and on the government's minds. We've had endless graphs at the number 10 press conferences, that famous 100,000 a day uh, target for tests. But Health Secretary Matt Hancock got a public reproof this week from the head of the UK Statistics Authority for using data on testing, which was deemed to be far from complete and comprehensible. So, Gavin, what's what's the problem? Uh, there are many problems. Um, I think we're, we're sort of seeing a, a number of different ones. First of all, something that we've seen in government quite a lot but has been brought to the fore by this crisis is that it's still far too difficult to get the right data to the right people at the right time um, to make decisions and to understand what's actually going on um, with a particular service. Um, I think you know, Baroness Harding in front of the um, Health Select Committee this week you know, was unable to answer questions about how many people were actually being tested. Now that's not only important for accountability but if you're actually running the service and trying to understand how um, the virus is spreading through the country that's pretty essential information. Well, and um, it, that doesn't mean she doesn't have the data. I mean, she sounded cautious about uh, not not releasing, but it before it's validated, isn't it? Isn't that reasonable? Um, so there are also, I mean, that that is also a, a sort of possible explanation. I think there are probably other areas as well where the, the data just isn't there or is too difficult um, to pull together. In fact, some of the um, initiatives that the NHS has been involved in at the moment is exactly bringing together data that's stored in different spreadsheets and different systems across different organisations um, to try to understand um, how the virus is spreading. I think and the, the Baroness Harding example of not being able to talk about it is, is one example of this, but actually how government's been communicating the data it does have has also been a problem. Um, I think part of that is that there's a lot of uncertainty in a lot of this data. There are lots of different numbers about the same thing, whether that's um, the sort of rate of death. And um, there are at least three different ways of counting that sort of daily things that we've seen, which until April were just looking at deaths um, in the NHS system. There's a sort of weekly ONS, Office of National Statistics numbers, um, which are more detailed, but obviously take a little bit longer to pull together from death certificates. Even those don't always capture whether somebody has died because of coronavirus. So we've also got the third measure, um, which is excess deaths, which is the sort of if there are more deaths than there were a comparable time last year. So there are lots of different numbers swirling around. And it's not always been clear which numbers government is talking about at any one point. And also conveying the uncertainty that's inherent in all of those numbers. I think all of us are sort of reaching for certainty. We think that numbers can provide that. But actually, the birth of some of these numbers is a lot more complicated um, than it might seem. If just, just to go, yeah, to... I think that's a, that's a very that's a very very good point. I, I just perhaps you can shed some light on something that's been um, um, intriguing me for weeks and weeks, as the government refers to the R number and puts an awful lot of weight on it. This is the rate of transmission of the. Uh, of the virus and it says oh well it's between 0.7 now and 0.9 but it's a bit higher in Wales and we don't and it's edged up this week and so on how can it have the R number at all without a really extensive system of tracing or of testing that's an extremely good question I'm, I'm not sure it can and I think I think again being clear about some of the models that sit behind these things is somewhere where government could have been a lot better you know R is a model um, it is very difficult to be able to point to an exact number. It's something that's also sort of retrospective. You need to understand um, what the cases are looking like, how many there are, and try to model other factors into that. And again, there's a, sometimes a spurious certainty in the way that that's been talked about. And um, there's also an issue, and I think Roland sort of touched on this earlier, about you know, the R number may be very different in different parts of the country, maybe different in um, areas within uh, local areas of the country. And 
again, do the do local decision makers have access to those, that that information? How exactly is this number being calculated, and how is it being applied by government? Again, there's been some controversy this week about you know the different alert levels and whether government is actually sticking to those and you know opening up the things that being in a particular alert level suggests it should, or whether it's sort of making it up as it goes along, really. Roland, we were hearing an awful lot about the app a couple of uh, weeks ago. This was an app that was going to automatically tell people uh, on their phone whether um, uh, whether they'd, they'd uh, come into contact with someone else uh, who who tested positive. And then we haven't heard anything about it for the past couple of weeks, really. And the words Isle of Wight, where it was being trialled, have almost disappeared from the news. What's what's going so on? So the new line coming out is, is that um, uh, it's the cherry on the cake, not the cake itself. That's That's what government spokespeople tell us when we ask about it with a with a kind of faint hint in their voice i, I do i do think this government ought to stay away from cake i, I, I know anyway. and, and when they and when they say that there's this sort of note of reproof in their voice as if uh, we the media have have been hyping up this app unnecessarily and we we really ought to stop it and be sensible but but in fact that the government pinned a lot of hopes on this in the in the beginning and you know, I mean, I'm I'm told by people who are kind of familiar with the the early meetings between NHS X, which is this innovation body which has really pushed forward the app, um, and kind of the people who suggested this idea that that when they had those first meetings, they absolutely seized upon this, and that then Matt Hancock, who's as we know, is very into tech, was also incredibly excited, and they they pinned a lot of hopes on it, and I think essentially what what's happened is that they they have realised that they they do need the the whole cake and. The whole cake is is physical, manual contact tracing, and gradually the the importance and, and kind of relevance of the app has gradually receded. And I think it's 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 worth noting that we are still waiting for any country in the entire world to use one of these apps effectively. Well, I was I was going to ask I was going to ask you that. Um, I mean, haven't some countries got it? Working and we had we had a lot of discussion of, of, of you know apps that were more based on what what the tech giants themselves were and doing. And, I, and I think is that it's it's interesting to see how the um, having kind of talked a lot of talk about this and declared ourselves one of the world leaders on this we've we've fallen behind other countries so Italy and France in the last couple of days have both launched their apps um, the, the I think the question is how how useful it is I mean. To, to me, as a, on a sort of logical basis, it does seem like it could be very useful because we do have those contacts with people that that we that we don't know. And you know, you're sitting next to someone on a on a train. You're you're kind of you know you're there for an extended period of time. You've you want to be able to trace those contacts, but actually feeding that into the contact tracing system is is very complicated, and. And, and, and given that the contact tracing system itself, the the cake, really isn't. I mean, you know, I know the government. The government says it's up and running, but honestly, I'm speaking to contact tracers every day. I'm speaking to directors of public health, and you know, I mean, it's it's up, but it's it's not running. I think I think it's still an an open question to you know exactly how the app will feed in, and that's even putting aside all those questions which we went over and over and over. Um, you know, whether it's centralised or decentralised, do we go with the Google Apple model or our or our own one, even putting all that to one side, just like, will this be able to plug into our own system and, and, and feed into that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, we, 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 you know, we're, we're still waiting. And I, and I suppose the worry is that we're, we're waiting and figuring this out, but we're also 
loosening lockdown measures at the same time, and and you do hear a lot from people involved in this that they would prefer it if 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 we kind of had effectively maintained a tighter lockdown, worked things out, and then started to release. While they while they got the contact tracing system going, so okay, it's 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 obviously a very. I, mean, I think we can all you know imagine, um, in particular with the low tech version, the, the kind of the, the personal um, uh, tracing system, uh, that it's very difficult to get this working well. How good does it have to be to do some good and not be completely useless? If we set aside the idea of perfection and just say, look, um, you know, if if, if 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 people, if the government manages to trace two contacts of someone who's um, uh, who's uh, got a po- positive test. Um, is that doing some good? I'm not sure because that. I mean, that really is a question for the modelers. But in a way, I think that I would sort of slightly re- reverse re- reverse the question and ask how much impact can this have? Because that I, that I do know the answer to. And essentially, the the Royal Society have worked out that this could have a five to fifteen percent impact on transmission. And I'm I'm guessing that the five percent is when it's you know not done so well, and fifteen percent is when it's done extremely well and and while that's significant it's it's, you know it could be extremely important it's it's actually not that much which i think kind of really stresses that the 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 importance of ongoing lockdown measures and and it's really and it's it's worth sort of saying i mean we're taking a big risk with um with our kind of level of transmission at the moment because not only is our r can really quite near one and it's suggested that say opening schools could add 0.3 to the R you know if we're currently at 0.8 that would take us over one but also you know our level of cases you know with with 8,000 a day if if the R is one that means we'll have 8,000 tomorrow and 8,000 the next day one percent fatality rate you're effectively setting the level of deaths at 80 a day and that just gives us very little room for maneuver so um so I, I guess I'd say well it seems like that this that this has to go quite well, and but even if it does, it probably can't make that big a difference compared to the the simple expediency of just everyone staying indoors. Mm. What about the amount of personal information that that people are going to have to hand over to the government, whether it's um, through telling someone on the phone if they've been in, in touch with, or, or through the app? I mean, Gavin, do you, should people be worried? Um, I think this might actually be um, a rare instance of where the phrase stay alert is is, is quite useful. Um, because, of course, you know, people are understandably concerned if they're handing a lot of sensitive information over to government um, and if it's not entirely clear how government's using that. So let's take the, the sort of test and trace um, scheme that's been rolled out over the last week as an example. So this is the sort of manual side of it. This is not the app bit of it. Um, the day after, the day it started rolling out, uh, Public Health England published a privacy notice which said that if you are one of the people who's tested positive, uh, your data will be kept for 20 years. And if if it's any of your contacts, their data will be kept for five. Now, I think a lot of people saw those numbers and thought... That seems like quite a long time. Why exactly does the NHS need this to keep is, that? Right, this is the contacts, um, you know, phone numbers and addresses. And and it's not entirely clear exactly who would be having access to this. I think a few questions have been asked about, well, does this go into the data store that the NHS um, X has been developing where there are various private companies involved? So I think a little bit more clarity in the communications from government around mm-hmm. that would be really useful. But I think one of the most damning things is that it transpires the government hasn't conducted a data protection impact assessment on this yet. Now, those are the sorts of things that you're supposed to do before you roll this kind of thing out. And I think it really, it risks really damaging public trust 
in how government uses our personal data. You know, there's, there, there are huge opportunities if government is able to, you know, join together some of our data in terms of delivering better public services and being able to conduct a you know, real, really interesting research and analysis um, that could have really beneficial impact. But you really need to bring the public with you on this because it's so sensitive. And I think by rushing things out, by not explaining things as fully as it might, um, the government is really taking quite a big risk there. I mean, we can, we can all understand the need for the, the rush, but government's record on, if I can ask you a leading question, uh, government's record on handling personal data has not been perfect, has it? Uh, no, there have been there have been a few instances um, in the past. I think one of, one of the ones that um, comes to mind was the sort of Care Dot Data Initiative, which was eventually closed in 2016, um, which was designed to bring together again health and social care data from from various different places. And the criticisms um, that were made of it were both from a technical angle um, in terms of how it was actually being conducted, but also again some of the communications around it were really poor. You know, things coming through people's letterboxes, if indeed they did come through people's letterboxes that looked a bit like junk mail and if you hadn't been primed to expect it and um, could be quite scary in, in in some instances so so we we do know that government has struggled with this but i think one of the problems we have at the moment is that we actually don't really know exactly how all of our data is being used by government you know th- there are some um information sharing agreements and um, which have to be published but do we really have a good sense of where data is flowing across government, where it's being used and what it's being used for? I don't think we do. And again, knowing what your data is being used for is really important for public consent around some of this. If you tell people, if, if you ask people in surveys or in focus groups, so if government were to use your very sensitive health data, but it was doing it to improve your um, own service as part of the health system or to be able to help the government better fight diseases, people often agree to that. So again, it just shows how important open, transparent communication and explanation is um, to all of us. So what advice would any of you give to the government on taking public trust uh, and trying to keep public trust during this you know, really very complicated and ambitious exercise? A bit of transparency would be helpful, I think. Uh, but, but also mainly, I mean, it just needs to work. That For yes. most people, that that is the thing that matters. It, it needs... It, it needs to work and they need to they need to feel comfortable i think also involving existing um health structures would would i think be help people along so because so for example with the it's called the nhs test and tracing but it's not actually run by by the nhs people inside it aren't nhs professionals and, there, and a lot of people in the NHS feel as if they don't have any relationship to it. And also, I mean, more worryingly, so they say they can't get data out of it. And I th- it, it is, it's interesting to, to wonder what a scheme would look like if when you tested positive, you contacted your GP or, or someone like that and the contact tracing was, was organised like, like that. And I, and I do think that the people would be more likely to, to comfortably give up their their personal information to their GP because it is ultimately it's, it's you know this isn't unnecessary data collection it's incredibly necessary um, and if you if you were going to speak to someone you you really trusted who you knew was trained rather than um, a contact tracer who's paid um, between ten and seventeen pounds an hour and has had a, a couple of days training I mean it, it I think so 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 yeah I mean. You know, but, but just in general, I mean, I'd, I'd settle for a, a tiny bit more transparency just on a personal level. Mm. And Hannah, what do you reckon about the, the, the government's, you know, daily communications or the communications to Parliament on this? 
I think they said, haven't they, that they're going to, to stop the uh, the weekend press briefings because they haven't got high enough viewing numbers, um, which, you know, seems again an uh, 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 opportunity to be transparent and to convey more information is being uh, got rid of. But obviously ministers have other things to do and so do the other public health officials um, who are involved. I mean, I think the government has been trying to sort of make statements to Parliament and give opportunities for MPs, um, now a certain set of MPs, to, to ask questions. And select committees have been doing a very good job um, in, in extracting information from the government machine during this period. Um, so I think it's really important that the public sees that Parliament is operating and sees that the, the politicians are being held to account. Let's now turn our attention across the Atlantic, where the United States has been rocked by a week of demonstrations, protests and riots following the death on camera of an African-American man, George Floyd, in police custody. The world has been watching, wondering what is happening to US government and its ability to shape the rest of the world. President Donald Trump has attacked governors and mayors, saying most of you are weak and threatened to deploy the military if they didn't dominate over the rioters. But many Democratic governors and mayors have hit back, calling on him to just stop talking. The Democratic mayor of Atlanta said he's making it worse. To get a sense of who is running America at the moment, I spoke to Mark Landler, the London bureau chief of The New York Times. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bronwyn. Tell me, the world is looking at the United States, at the extraordinary pictures coming out uh, night after night. What should the world make of it? Well, I think the world should be really quite alarmed uh, because I think that um, in some ways, uh, three years of President Trump was all leading to this moment. A lot of people uh, predicted when Trump was elected uh, that we might get through this presidency without a major calamity. Uh, provided there wasn't a crisis. Uh, and now you've got uh, multiple simultaneous crises. First was obviously the pandemic, uh, and President Trump uh, handled that by all accounts very badly. And now you've got this sort of surge of anger around the country at police brutality, which in some ways Trump is perhaps uh, the, the least fit possible leader to deal with. Uh, so I think you've got this congruence of of events that are deeply unsettling. And I think that for people around the world, it's a, it's a moment of genuine danger and a moment of genuine risk. Uh, and one hopes that the U.S. gets through it. Um, but I don't think we can take it for granted that our institutions or our democracy will emerge from this without some lasting damage. Well, I want to come on to those points. But uh, let me just ask you this. Um, police brutality, uh, killing of a black man, riots after that. Is that something new? Does this time feel different? Or is it something very, very old? People have been queuing up to I, say, look, this is, this is hardly the first. This goes back to you know, the creation of America. It's not new at all, of course. Um, this is a decades and even generations. It's, this has been a problem. Um, I think what you may have had in this case is a confluence of a very deeply rooted problem um, that has exploded into violence on many, many previous occasions, whether it's Baltimore or Los Angeles. 
And that I think you've got the added stress of a country that has been in a coronavirus lockdown for two to three months uh, with an economy that, as here and everywhere else, has sort of collapsed. So I think you've got some pent-up frustration and anxiety on top of which you have this perennial issue of police brutality, particularly against African-Americans. Um, and then I think, you know, on top of all of that, you have a president who rather than calling for calm and, and seeking unity and healing, uh, chooses to um, divide, to, to weaponize um, the feelings on both sides, uh, and in the process actually makes a bad situation uh, infinitely worse. And we've heard, of course, Jim Mattis, his former defense secretary, saying exactly that, uh, that, that he is dividing people, he tries to divide us. But one of the things that people looking from other countries in wonder is, in a sense, who is running America at the moment? You have the president attacking mayors and governors and telling them that they're weak and they're not dominating the situation. You have them telling him to just stop talking, uh, that he's that he's making things worse. A lot of Democratic mayors lined up uh, to criticize him. You have uh, former President Obama calling on the mayors uh, directly uh, to, to try and help resolve this. And then you have Twitter uh, saying uh, to the president, no, you don't run your own tweets. We're, we're, we're going to uh, put our, our alerts and corrections on those if we feel justified. Um, in a sense, it, it, the United States can easily be misinterpreted by other countries, which have, a, say, a much more centralized uh, way of running themselves. But is there a sense in which the government of, of the U.S. is coming apart at the moment? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that, um, as you say, the U.S. is a federal system and governors and, and local officials have a great deal of authority. And that became very clear uh, during the pandemic, when you saw governors in California and New York acting aggressively and often at odds with the message coming from the White House. Um, and likewise, in the response to this unrest, you're seeing uh, governors and mayors often finding themselves in conflict with the president. At the same time, the president still plays an absolutely vital role in, in setting the tone for the country. Uh, he's still the commander in chief. He still has the power as he did in the last few days to order military police and other troops into the streets of the American capital. So make no mistake, uh, this is still a very, very powerful position. And he has shown in the last few days how he can exercise that power. I think though what is true is that through the um, repeated inflammatory statements and the divisive rhetoric of President Trump, you're now beginning to see very influential voices in the country say we can no longer rely on the president to, to supply moral leadership. And we have to get that moral leadership from somewhere else. That was an important part of Jim Mattis's statement last night. And, and you're seeing former presidents speak out in ways that they historically would have been very reluctant to do, whether it was Barack Obama yesterday, a statement issued by uh, George W. Bush in the past couple of days. So you are beginning to see other voices uh, saying that they we, we need to find other places to look for moral leadership. So it's this strange dichotomy between a president who still exercises a great deal of executive authority, but seems day by day to be relinquishing some of the moral authority that has always been at the heart of the American presidency. 
Which in a, may, in a way may be a reassurance to people that other voices will come in. On the other hand, as you said, he still has enormous um, ability to, to act, uh, enormous power still attached to the office. And I uh, hope that famous checks and balances and so on would, would circumscribe uh, you know, uh, unorthodox characters getting into the White House. Well, that, that hasn't quite um, proved to be the case, has it? It, it hasn't. I mean, I think you know, what, what you've seen over the course of this presidency is his effort to systematically degrade institutions that could be a check on his power. Uh, you know, the intelligence community, the courts, the Justice Department. Uh, and, and, and in this past week, I would say the military. I mean, one of the very interesting dramas that's playing out in the aftermath of the violent clearing of Lafayette Square is you're seeing this rather serious split between the military and the president, driven by a belief on the part of many former generals, whether Mattis or, or, or Mike Mullen or some of the others who have spoken out, over the belief that he has, has misused and exploited the military over the past few days and improperly inserted the military into a, de- a domestic law enforcement issue. And, uh, you know, the defense secretary who was part of this rather shameful photo op that occurred uh, two days ago when President Trump walked across Lafayette Square to St. John's Episcopal Church, he is now dividing, uh, setting himself apart from the president, saying he opposed the president's effort to, to invoke the Insurrection Act and, uh, you know, he has misgivings about other things that have, have unfolded in the last two days. So, you know, the military is the latest in a long line of American institutions that have been through, put through this horrendous stress test by President Trump. Some of the institutions have emerged looking quite resilient. I would argue the courts have actually proven themselves to be quite resilient. Uh, the intelligence community, perhaps a little less so. The Department of Justice, much less so. Um, we'll see in the next few days and weeks how the military emerges from this experience. Will they draw back? Will they will they resume their historic role? Will there be this, you know, return to what has been a deeply held tradition of the military not getting involved in domestic politics, or will Trump continue to push? the serving generals into that very awkward position. So I think that's one of the things that we should all keep a close eye on as this plays out. If President Trump loses the election in November, does all this just uh, blow away with the wind? Um, The Trump presidency consigned to history and everything reverts to the way it was, including America's standing in the world, the strain on these institutions that you've been talking about? I wish I could say that were the case. I'm I'm somewhat skeptical um, because the powers that you know Trump unleashed and has harnessed in the past three years uh, will not just go away. There will have to be a very serious effort to deal with police brutality, for example, a, a problem that predated Trump and will go on long after him. There will have to be a way to deal with the the issues of economic. Um, inequality that that contributed to some of the strains around coronavirus and around uh, law enforcement. Whether the U.S. simply returns to its international role after Trump is also, I think, a very much a contested issue. Um, I think a lot of Americans, and not just Trump supporters, were weary of the role the U.S. played as the leader of the liberal international order. Um, I think trade, for example, 
the debate on free trade, which was once a cardinal principle of the Republican Party, has really been changed probably in a lasting way. Uh, and so I think that it's probably uh, not the case that Trump's departure alone fixes all these things. A Republican senator, Tom Cotton, has gotten a lot of attention in the past 24 hours for an op-ed that was published by my newspaper in which he advocated sending the troops into American cities to put down these riots. Tom Cotton's likely to run for president in 2024, and he uh, you know, espouses some positions that Donald Trump would be very comfortable with. So I don't think these debates are by any means settled. I will say that removing this inflammatory, polarizing, divisive figure, you know, will in the short run really help the tone in the United States. I think maybe uh, will take the rhetoric down a great deal. Um, so I do think, you know, just in terms of civil discourse, it will be a huge improvement if he loses. The underlying issues will remain. And finally, just on the tech business and pulling together this theme of uh, who, who runs the United States at the moment, uh, big tech has really owned the lockdown. Is it going to get bigger? I think tech's a big winner out of the lockdown and out of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, for, for small reasons, uh, not small, but, but, but for the, you know, proximate cause that they're going to supply a lot of the software, I think that will allow uh, countries to test and trace and, uh, and isolate populations. So I think they're a, an inevitable winner, um, you know, in, in the pandemic itself. In terms of the larger political discourse, I, I guess I would say I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I, you've seen in the last few weeks, uh, I, indeed over the last few months, you've seen companies like Facebook really become branded as unhelpful players. And I think Mark Zuckerberg's refusal to take a position on the immense power that Facebook has in setting the political discourse uh, in the United States, not to mention being a conduit for efforts to to destabilize the electoral system. Um, I think that's really hurt Facebook a great deal. And, and, and a growing number of people I know have, um, have closed down their accounts and don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, so I think that, you know, as a practical matter, they benefited from the pandemic. Uh, in terms of their long-term role in political discourse, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. And I'm not sure whether these companies are going to end up looking, you know, more like Rupert Murdoch's Fox and less like the exciting companies we thought of 10, 15 years ago. Well, absolutely fine and appropriate to end on a note of uncertainty. Mark, thank you very much for those thoughts and for joining us. Pleasure, Bronwyn. Good to be with you. And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My great thanks to Hannah White, Gavin Freegard, and Roland Manthorpe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. If you want to hear more of our discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Next week, we'll be speaking to Audrey Tang, the Taiwanese digital minister, to learn more about Taiwan's successful handling of the coronavirus outbreak, an example of how to use data well, perhaps. And we're also gathering together an expert panel to look at how science advice shapes political decisions here in the UK. You can find IFG Live at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Stay alert and see you soon. Bye.